Hello, welcome to the Net Hero podcast. I'm Sumit Bose. I hope you've had a sheltered week. Um, those storms were appalling, weren't they? Really were. Um, loss of life, four people dead during Eunice, and God knows how much damage has been done. Amazing work by the Energy Networks. They've done an incredible job restoring power to so many people. I think at the height of it, more than a million plus uh, households were in that power, and they've returned it. And spare a thought, you know, I posted this week on social media, spare a thought for all the engineers who've been working in that terrible weather. But it does make you realise, you know, how precarious everything is uh, when we're up against Mother Nature. And if that's not a reminder of how things are, I'm not relating, you know, these storms to climate change, but certainly these storms show you that it doesn't take much for our systems to collapse and why we need to be really aware of the damage that can be done. So uh, if you've been affected by the storms, I hope you're okay. Uh, but certainly it was a, a really example of kind of, you know, what can happen to our livelihood because without the power, you know, everything's shut down. So hopefully most people will be getting back to normal uh, this week and weather stabilizing. And when it comes to the weather, you know, that's really one of those things, isn't it? We can see what's happening and uh, the scientists are publishing more doom and gloom about what's happening to our weather in the second of three major reports, which is due out on Monday. Uh, this report's from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it's been looking at the trends of the last sort of five or six years in terms of warming. And it's saying that it looks like there's going to be more issues, uh, particularly with what's happening in terms of global stress in places that are already stressed like uh, sub-saharan africa what will happen in terms of tipping points when it comes to uh, things like migration you know this is the other side of what we're looking at you've got to look at what will happen to you know the planet is one thing the planet will survive but really what we're doing is affecting our livelihoods more than anything else and this is what these reports are going to probably suggest that we are looking at more issues of social justice, more issues of migration, pressure on immigration, pressure on resources, unless we start to do something about it. And it'll be the, the work of politicians to get on and try and sort this out. And that's not helping right now with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. And as we speak at the recording of this, you know, Russian tanks have rolled into Donetsk and you know, this is all very worrying, not just from the point of view of, of what's going to happen to people, but also it shows you again what this nexus of kind of politics and energy uh, already oil prices are shooting up as we speak. And so we're in this really kind of tinderbox time where you realise how important it is for us to try and get away from the major oil and gas import life that we all seem to have and try and move towards some more sustainable energy. And I think that is hopefully something that will happen more over this year. And in talk of that, um, some great stuff uh, has been done for the fishing industry, which obviously, you know, sustainable fishing is something I think is very important. Uh, I think a year or two ago, there was that uh, big Netflix documentary and everyone was appalled by it. But we've been doing that for years, you know, deep trawling, you know, we've been doing that for, good 25 years and it's only now we're waking up to all the damage we need to do much more sustainable fishing and the government has just uh, this past week uh, added a, an extra million pound in funding to help uh, using 
things like artificial light to change uh, fish behavior to try and stop what they call bycatch you know fish that shouldn't have been caught and unfortunately dying so we need to look at new technologies to help us with that and i think that's an interesting story uh, before i get on to the actual podcast this week uh, just a reminder that we have now uh, announced some more uh, speakers and some more sponsors for our big zero show so i'm delighted to say that uh, you'll soon be able to see that SSE has joined us. Uh, we have already Total, uh, Centrica, and several others. Uh, we've got our first uh, set of speakers up there and some great topics they'll be covering, such as kind of um, carbon reduction in building, looking at sort of how you make your, uh, your estate sustainable, how we work with financing uh, the right way to get us to, to net zero. So all of that, go to bigzeroshow.com and remember to register more than 100 uh, places have gone. We've got 500 in total, so get your tickets now. They're free. So please uh, go to either futurenetzero.com or thebigzeroshow.com. Now, on to the podcast for this week. And it's an intriguing, I always say this, it's intriguing, but this one really is. And it took me back to my science days because this week's podcast is all about the soil that's right the soil and exactly what kind the soil teach us about climate change now you might think this is completely um, bonkers but it's not what we're looking at is work by a company called eagle genomics which looks at basically how the soil is a way of sort of capturing carbon for helping us to ensure that it is not escaping and uh, is a very major part of what could be used to improve our levels of carbon capture. So I had a chat with uh, the CEO of that company, Anthony Finbar, and uh, we, we, we delved deep into uh, the, the microbial world. Now, many moons ago, I had a flirtation with science, the idiot that I am. I tried to be, uh, well, I didn't try to be, I did do a degree in microbiology. And uh, if you don't know what that means, neither did I. It's basically the biology of small things, bacteria, viruses, funguses. And it's a very interesting world because it's a world that we really don't know that much about, even though we're trying to explore more. But could it be a world that could help us to reverse the climate crisis? Could there be things in the soil? Could there be uh, microbes that could help us in the fight against climate change? Well, one man certainly thinks so, and he's the subject of the Net Hero podcast today. He's chuckling in the background. Uh, Anthony Finbo, you're the CEO of Eagle Genomics. Anthony, hello. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. Hi, Sumit. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Um, first, explain what genomics is. So it's a good name, genomics. It makes me think of some sort of thing from sort of Skynet in the future. But uh, what does your company do? Well, genomics is the uh, is the technology. I think, uh, Sumit, that's where it should start. Uh, that enables us to understand genes, uh, and and genomics is is really the mechanisms to help us understand, you know, what genes are, where they appear on the on the strand of DNA. Uh, you know, we think about the human genome. There are three billion base pairs. These are effectively the one, two, three, four nucleotides that form genes together in concert. 
And uh, you yeah. know, there are 3 billion of those bases, 6 billion base pairs. We now have, since uh, over the last 20 years, we have mechanisms to generate uh, the understanding of DNA, which gives us a new window into understanding life on Earth uh, and uh, you know, a whole range of uh, other topics, uh, you know, how organisms evolve, how they get sick, how they, how they maintain wellness, et cetera, et cetera. So and that's what, the genome. What, what, yeah, and what does, what does Eagle Genomics do? Well, you know, Eagle Genomics is something of a misnomer because we use a range of data sources to try and generate first hypotheses to understand workings of life, but then to focus on particular topics to help elucidate better understanding of disease, wellness, illness. And we are focused particularly on the on the microbiome. And, you know, assume that you will know, you know, from your background what that is. Uh, but, um, this, is gonna, this is turning into a nerd fest, isn't it? So we, we, should explain, we should explain a little bit about this, I think, to the audience. So uh, it, I, I was actually one of the journalists that worked on all that stuff. I covered the Human Genome Project. And so Amazing. for the listener that gets it, you know, we now know kind of our whole, people might know the genetic blueprint. So then we know what makes up all our, our, our bodies. and what the genes are you said the, the four base pairs and but you know the microbiome um how would you uh, define it so that people are, it's, it's kind of the world isn't it the world of these of these things exactly sumit so first of all you, you made a very important point uh, when you described the genome which is that you described it as the blueprint for life on earth but yeah. as we as we all know the blueprint is not the assembly manual the blueprint mm. describes what could be built. It's the bricks. Yeah. Yeah. We need, we need to move beyond the blueprint to figure out what the assembly manual says about how life is actually constituted. So to answer your question, the microbiome in the sort of narrow sense, and perhaps, you know, most proximate for, for, the, for the listener, is the two kilograms of microorganisms in your lower gut that translates what you eat into what your, need, your body needs to subsist. In those two kilograms of organisms, uh, microorganisms, there are perhaps as many cells as there are human cells in what constitutes what scientists are now calling the holobiont, which is the host or the human together with the other organisms that live in symbiosis with that organism such that it can subsist. So, you know, if you think about, as, as I've said, you know, perhaps half the cells that constitute you are microbial cells yeah. if you look at the genomics as much as 99 percent of the genomic content available to metabolize what you eat is within the microorganisms so we've effectively outsourced huge swathes of activity to these microbes in order that they perform some service for us so that we can subsist in an environment so in a way what you're saying is that you know we're quite lazy. Even our digestive system has got a bunch of little bacteria that are doing most of the work for us. <laughs> well, I think that's absolutely right. You know, look, um, the tube from your mouth to your anus, yeah. uh, uh, you know, that's something that's been conserved throughout biology. The hydra, the smallest of organisms, has a microbiome, a, a small community of microbes in the tube that is the hydra, metabolizing uh, whatever flows through that tube so that it becomes available to the host. So this is, you know, fundamental to life. Uh, and the microbiome has been with us from really from inception. And uh, because it's been invisible to us and scientifically yeah. speaking and technically speaking inaccessible, yeah. we've, we've largely ignored it. Yeah. I mean, look, people will know, uh, you know, you see it in health food shops, you know, have some, you know, lactobacilli or, you know, you know, get some bacteria good bacteria in your gut there's loads of products loads of people make a lot of money on it. but in reality this is actually quite a fundamental part of biology isn't it the the the, the system so all animals we probably most people who understand that cows 
chew the cud and they have, you know, all these various stomachs, full stomachs, if I remember my biology. But what's doing it is the bacteria that live there and many different things. Why has it been so difficult to study this before we talk about the link between what you're doing and, and sort of climate change? Why has it been difficult? To is it just because, A, they're so small, or B, because we've never really, you know, we've never really looked at it. You know, we're probably people have been looked more interested in knowing how your lungs work and your heart functions. We've been looking at the kind of what we'd call us rather than the, the little passengers we carry. Well, I think as much as anything, Stuart, it's a con context, question of context, uh, you know, just in what you said, you know, us uh, or we and the passengers we carry. So the context is we are not them. But, um, you know, that, that's questionable. But I think... Um, so are we the one? We're just getting very, very surreal. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, together with these organisms, we constitute something that is greater than the individual organism. That's a fact, I think. Um, right. Now, what I'd also say is... Um, you know, context back to context. You know, for the last you know hundred years or so, our collective consciousness has been dominated when it comes to disease by the germ theory of disease, which is you know what yeah. Robert Koch and uh, Louis Pasteur and Alexander Fleming etc. You know, postulated as 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 the basis for understanding disease, and it served us well. But I think we need a different context. You know, the germ theory of disease is at one end of the spectrum. The hygiene hypothesis is at the other end, and and, and the hygiene hypothesis suggests that depleting the microorganism immediately uh, engaging with the host is having a profound negative impact on our health. And we are trying to help move so that we better understand and, and, and perhaps can even prove the hygiene hypothesis through this new understanding of microbiome science. This is the sort of theory that, you know, uh, being too clean is bad for us, right? Exactly. Exactly. And um, I think, you know, there are all sorts of books emerging on this topic. There's one by um, an amazing scientist in Canada called Brett Finley called Let Them Eat Dirt. It's about how you need to. My grandmother, I don't know about yours, but my grandmother yeah. always said to me, you know, you've got to eat a peck of dirt before you die. And I thought, well, that what, what does she mean by that? That's just kind of a chicken pecking a few granules of soil. But a peck is an old imperial measure, which uh, is more than a couple of kilograms. So I, I, I now understand that more. It's taken me, you know, a good, good few years to understand that. But the fact is that there is correlation between infants that are not exposed to microbial communities uh, in the way that, uh, you know, perhaps they should be and, uh, and, and manifesting asthma, eczema, a whole range of other yeah, Maladies the, the allergy side of things as well, isn't it? Very <clears throat> common people say that it could be because we're not exposing ourselves to to things anymore the way we used to, which is and why I like to exactly mm -hmm. something. I like to think of I like to describe that as the breakdown in the conversation between the microbial community and the human host. Mm. Um, because once again, when we think about when we think about the genome, the human genome, look, um, that blueprint evolves and changes. You know, a very small uh, proportion of those six billion base pairs changes with every generation. So once every 50 to 70 years, that changes. But if you look at the microbial community, perhaps 60 times a day, 60, 70 plus times a day, there is a generational change. <clears throat> the other thing to say is, you know, because of the way the human cells are constituted, the energy sources available enable them to conserve and, and to protect the genome. Whereas microbes shed genomic content in uh, distressed environments and in an abundant environment, they capture through a range of different mechanisms, genetic content to enable them to evolve. And all of that means that the microbial universe is evolving much faster than the host environment. And as a consequence, because of the way we live, that means that this conversation between the microbial community, the ecology, 
wherever that may be, and the host is breaking down. And I think that's what we're seeking to understand better through the technology platform that we've built at Eagle Genomics. Let's talk about climate change. So <clears throat> we understand now that hopefully the, re- the listener has not been lost in, in, the, in the science. This is a bit like Jurassic Park. Right? <laughs> so um, we've, we've got the little building blocks that are in there. We've got the bacteria that keep changing, so they're modifying themselves. In the world, we can see it, right? You leave a bit of fruit out, it rots, and uh, obviously there's all flies and everything like that. But after a while, it'll just disappear. And it disappears because fungi and bacteria break it all down. When it comes to the soil and the soil community, which is something that you've been particularly looking at, people might not know this, but there's a lot of nitrogen, right, in the soil, isn't there? Mm. A lot of nitrogen, which is if you've used fertilizer or compost, you, if you have to look at it, it'll, it'll tell you what the nitrogen is. What are the, the, the bacteria, what are the microbes doing regarding nitrogen in the soil? Perhaps, uh, Sumit, before I answer your question, I just want to extend my definition of microbiome, because what I described previously with those two kilograms of microorganism, microorganisms was the, um, the microbiome in the narrow sense. <clears throat> but if we look at um, all life on Earth, yeah. and we subtract everything that's green, so yeah. all of the organisms that are using photosynthesis to, to generate energy and to subsist, then we look at what's left. As much as 93% of the biomass remaining on Earth, subtracting all the green organisms, is microbial. So uh, Incredible, uh, isn't it, really? If, you, if you're an alien, you came here, you'd go, what's the most populous thing? It wouldn't be us. <laughs> Not at all, no. And you know, when you think about mammalian species, yeah. Uh, that's perhaps 2% of the remaining, Incredible. 2 3% of the remaining biomass on Earth. So our models are wrong unless we take this into account. And when, when I think about soil, I think about uh, soil as being microbial and uh, ecology plus dirt. Right. Um, so really, we cannot understand life on Earth without understanding the soil. And, you know, what I'd also say is um, some common ancestor of ours, some X billion years ago, you know, evolved, first of all, through the bacterium hitching a ride on another type of microorganism, an archaeon. And together they determined that it was better for them in the environment to operate in symbiosis. And and that was the basis for all the higher order forms of life on Earth. But that's only one form of symbiosis. If we think about the soil and the plant, so plants exude, plants capture carbon dioxide from the the atmosphere. They plant more trees, we all know that, absolutely. Exactly. But that's not enough because they actually translate that carbon dioxide in part to make at the root what we call exudates, which are sugar-rich compounds that attract and feed microbial and fungal communities around the roots. And what, we've dis- what we're starting to realize is that uh, that symbiosis or that mechanism for interaction between microbe and plant is the basis for a much more effective translation to enable availability of nitrogen at the plant root, which is necessary for the plant's uh, effective health growth and for translation of mineral content from soil such that it's available to the plant so that the plant can grow in a way that is nutritious for the downstream consumption by whatever animal. Another thing I'd say is, you know, look, we in more recent history evolved from creatures who had their mouths to the soil. So there was this mechanism for translation or, or, or movement of microbial content from the soil into our guts so that the conversation between the gut and the host was maintained. We have been over the last uh, 100 plus years, you know, using a whole range of uh, technologies, particularly Harbour Bosch processes to generate uh, artificial fertilizers. And we're using a whole range of 
technologies to generate um, herbicides to protect particular plant crops that we've been yeah. uh, generating yeah. for food. But these are damaging the ecology of the soil and breaking down that symbiosis between the plant root and the microbes and the fungi. And as a consequence, the, the plant root in, a, in, a, in an artificially fertilized soil that's been treated with uh, you know, herbicides doesn't produce the exudates and it doesn't operate in symbiosis. And the consequence of that is perhaps the plant is growing to deliver far less nutritious content to whatever consumes it. So when we think also about, um, when we think about planting trees, you know, trees grow in soils that require microbial content. Otherwise, they don't grow healthily and effectively. So yeah. it's not good enough just to think about planting trees. It's much too narrow and small a kind of context for us to figure out what's actually going on. You talk about the soil uh, mm. and this, this relationship. And, we, and I think people will probably understand. If you've seen that, maybe the Martian, he lives on potatoes, fertilised with his poo, right? Yeah. Yeah, because he need he needs he needs you know you need the dirt, but you need to have something. You can't just take dirt and add water. You need some biology in it, so you need some bacteria. Yeah. When it comes to this, as you said, this kind of symbiosis between the the, the bacteria, the fungi, whatever it is, the, the biome and, and the plant. What is it doing in terms of capturing the nitrogen? Because the plant needs to make nitrates anyway to, to, mm. to exist but also we have a lot of nitrous dioxide nitrogen dioxide is is one of the greenhouse gases we have a lot of that in the air mm. can can this this mix of the plant and the the microbes help us with that i think so i think so i think that um the other thing to say there's so many things to say about your your question sumit the first thing i'd say actually for the audience is uh, for the listener is you know there's a wonderful film called kiss the ground which describes this increasing appreciation of the circular nature of, of life on Earth. It subsists and then decays, and uh, you know, nutrients from organisms are, are just you know, fold back into the soil. The soil metabolizes them, and they're available for future growth. Um, this is inspiring a whole new uh, way about thinking about industry uh, towards the circular economy. And by the way, our purpose at Eagle Genomics is to is to accelerate what we call the generative economy, which is the bio-inspired dimension to the circular economy. Now, why is that important? And coming to answer your question now, because the mechanisms we've utilized to, to produce the fertilizer to yeah. um, enable you know, the, the, the growth of the plants we eat, that, that's kind of an extractive technology, a hugely damaging technology to the environment in so many ways. So many greenhouse gases emitted through the production of these fertilizers as a consequence of the process used there. That's the old economy. The new economy is circular. So we have to figure out this understanding of nature. And you know, McKinsey and Company describe what's coming as the bio-revolution. Boston Consulting Group describe the requirement for nature co-design, this deeper understanding of the circular processes nature uses as inspiration and mechanisms, perhaps, for us to figure out how to subsist and, and survive on Earth for, for a, a more sustained period, because it's quite clear that the you know the approach we've taken over the last hundred years will, will put us in great jeopardy. So figuring out how to ensure that we enrich the soil, how that we uh, ensure that the diversity of microbial organisms in the soil supports particular plant growth, how we figure out how we possibly even engineer these microbes uh, or, or engineer communities of these microbes so that they deliver a service which we understand such that we generate more healthy, nutritious food so that we you know, enable fast growth of forests uh, to capture more carbon. All of these things 
the you know the revolution is here it's all it's just patchy i think it was um William Gibson said, you know, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. It's happening now. There are companies out there like Join Bio that are Join, Join Bio rather that are working with uh, big ag tech businesses like Bayer to figure out how to engineer microbes so that they deliver more nitrogen or make more nitrogen content available uh, at the plant route to metabolize. The other thing to say is we've only sequenced the genome of perhaps one percent of microbial content in the soil. So there are biofactories waiting to be discovered in the soil that will help us evolve to move towards far more sustainable ways of living. For instance, you know, the, 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 there's a lot of focus on, at the moment on um, alternative proteins. We look at, you know, yeah. cows, um, of course, you know, we think about the really dangerous uh, greenhouse gases. Methane is, you know, 300% more da dangerous and damaging by some metrics uh, than the carbon dioxide. 25 percent of the methane emissions are a function of um, of cattle rearing for meat um yes so we're focusing on how we transform that industry or how we figure out alternatives so there's a huge interest in alternative proteins and there are a number of technologies that are being explored to figure out alternative proteins in the first instance today we have biomass fermentation so actually production of microbes for food in the distant future perhaps 50 years really in my opinion into the future we have cellular meats. And in the middle, we have this concept of precision fermentation, whereby we figure out what the characteristics of the protein in terms of nutritional content, uh, taste, texture, et cetera, we want. And we engineer microbial communities and use them to ferment bio plant, plant-based products to, to deliver those end products. This looks like a hugely exciting domain, which with it is accessible within a very short period of time. I mean, this is really interesting stuff, because if you look at where we are, you know, people have probably heard of Beyond Meat and yeah. there are loads of them there. And, and they are very tasty. I mean, it does, mm. does taste quite like meat. I mean, you know, the idea of having cellular meat, as you talked about, you know, people are talking about it already grown yeah. in the lab. And that brings up whole new interesting things, you know, uh, for people who object to meat on the, on the grounds of animal suffering. Well, if it's grown from a cell, where is that? But in terms of what we can do right now, and I, I agree with you, I think a lot of that stuff will happen. And certain communities, we have an idea of what protein is. Normally mm. it has four legs, right? Mm, exactly. um, you know, in, in other parts of the world, protein has six legs and it's insects and it's other things or it's seaweed or it's whatever it is. When you look at it, um, what could we be doing right now with the technology we have now in terms of what we're doing with the soil to try and capture some of these greenhouse gases what do you think we're missing out on I, I think the most important thing for us to focus on in the immediate term and it's starting summit but it's not accelerating uh, the pace it needs to is is to look at the incentive mechanisms and and you know if, if you think you're, about you're talking about money yeah? money yeah right talking about okay. money and the thing is the smart money you know the clever venture capital community the clever impact investment organizations the family offices that are concerned about um the more sustainable future. That money is moving inexorably in the direction of this supporting the more sustainable circular economy or the bio-revolution. But the financial frameworks to, to stimulate that and drive such that the alternatives are no longer viewed as, as compelling as perhaps they are by the simple metrics we're using today. 
it needs to move and it's not moving fast enough. Let me just give you the example in relation to the soil. And, and this goes to the concept of externalities in, in financial accounting. The fact that soil is available is not actually uh, at the moment measured in any way on a balance sheet to describe its value. If it's on a balance sheet in a traditional uh, financial framework, then it's described as uh, an area of land you know, of X number of square meters, yeah, which is available yeah. or, or on which you can build a property. But right. if, you, if you fundamentally transform the context to say, actually, we only have possibly 60 harvests left in the soil. So soils will collapse and we won't be able to produce food to feed the you know, 10 billion after 60 years. That's alarming. But if you think about the other end of the spectrum, that soil is a medium that's available in perpetuity to generate nutritious food, then you start to see the true value of soil. And we need to move the incentives such that we really start to focus on that so that... Well, well, let me just stop you there. So what you're saying is there needs to be a moment for us to think that actually it's not what we grow on it or what we you know, use to graze on it, but it's the soil itself. Exactly. The source of our, our nutrition in the future. Is that, is that what you're trying to say? We exactly that, Sumit. And I put that, uh, you know, there's, in, there's my headline eat soil for the planet. Yes. <laughs> well, we have to understand this natural capital contribution of soil. And we need to factor that in as a metric by which organizations are measured in order for us to move the incentives. It's starting to happen, but it's not happening quickly enough. It's quite a lot to take in. The listener. Yeah. Yes. And, and, I, and I followed it and I and I, I do get it. I get it. But we look at where we are globally. Mm. And you know, certain nations, we know what it's like in Ireland, for example, the, the US. And then you go to developing nations and it's very different kind of soils there and different kind of crops that they're growing and whatever they're looking at. Mm. What are we realistically looking at for, for some of this to happen? And I and I say realistically i get what you're saying and money and people who are smart enough to see that this is a good way to go would will go for it but if you're a farmer in vietnam or you're a farmer in rural ireland you're still tied to the old ways of i've got to you, you, they know how to look after their soil because they want to yeah. but they're bound by market economics yes. yes people like people want to have fruit that looks a certain way or you know whatever crops you're growing so they use the things that are destroying uh, the environmental biome, as you're saying. What can we do to help people right now to try and think about this? Because a farmer would say, I like what you're saying. And I need to feed my family tomorrow, Anthony. Of course. You know, that's a system change that's going to take a significant uh, period of time. But what, I, what is encouraging to me, Simit, is that the uh, generations and decades, the food industry, you know, from the most upstream, the farm, to the most downstream, the fast-moving consumer goods companies. They've been measured on delivering calorific content to humans. Yeah, yeah. And they are now starting to take more responsibility for figuring out that they are custodians of health because health systems are going to collapse around the world for humans and animals if we don't move upstream to focus on wellness. So the major organizations that are responsible for generating the lion's share of our, our foods are starting to take more seriously their role as custodians of health and custodians of the environment. We're seeing, you know, we're seeing the death of the old economy. For instance, Unilever more recently, you know, had activist, activist investors trying to squeeze its management because it was, in the opinion of some of these old style investors, far too focused on 
sustainability, not focused yes. enough on short-term yeah. profit. Yeah, yeah. Unilever is an exemplar in this regard. And other companies are going to have to follow suit because the short-term profit imperative is actually going to accelerate uh, the collapse of elements of our, you know, our way of life. And so uh, I think uh, the smart money is defending organizations like uh, Unilever. The smart money in the venture capital organi- uh, world is evolving to focus on impact and not just lip service to uh, ESG policies or greenwashing, but really focusing on impact. Why? Because if you listen to McKinsey and company with the thinking they're doing on the bio-revolution, this is going to liberate trillions of dollars of economic opportunity. The new economy that's emerging, and who knows how long it'll take to you know, really gather momentum, but you know, maybe a 10-year cycle, a 20-year cycle, a 50-year cycle. But McKinsey say that within 10 years, we will see trillion-dollar economic opportunities opening up because of the focus on a more sustainable way of living. And I think that will attract the behaviors and the, and the actors that are going to shift the economy. I think it's very difficult uh, for the farmer today to understand what to do, but the farmer will do the right thing, and the cost associated with doing the right thing will fall as a function of some of the uh, innovation that's now starting to occur, fueled by this new way of thinking about the economy. And my last point is this, you know, looking at where we are now, do we just need to have a think when we're at next out in the countryside, in our gardens, if we're lucky to have a garden, just to think about what we're doing to that soil? Because it's quite funny, all the rain, I've seen all the worm holes in my grass and other little buggers. <laughs> but I, I, I you know, I quite like worms, so I'm, still, yeah. I'm not going to do anything to do that. I don't really use too much kind of um, uh, weed kill except on the patio areas. But should we just have a little think about what we're doing? Because that moment you just said there that we might have 60 harvests left. I mean, that's that's quite terrifying. It could be. I think it's it's always a good idea to, you know, pause for thought. I do it every day myself, you know, when, when I wake up and I think these microbes that you described at the beginning of the conversation, Simit, you know, uh, if you put a you know plant matter on the ground and over a period of time, you know, watch it decay and, you know, time through time lapse, uh, you know, video photography, accelerate that journey. It's extraordinary what's happening. Uh, and, and, and that is providing content for these earthworms to subsist. Earthworms en- enable transformation of soil content such that it, it provides a home for microbial ecologies, which then act in symbiosis with the plants. Through these modern fer- fertilizer techniques, clear that um, the top 10, 20 centimeters of soil doesn't have that kind of earthworm population anymore. So the soil is degraded. I think every morning we, we, we just completely neglect the bioremediation service also that these microbes produce. The, the world cleans itself because of these microorganisms. It sustains itself because of these microorganisms. And we have to look upstream. So I think anything we can do to expand our consciousness, to, to, to understand that these organisms perform an extraordinary service. And just because we can't see them, we can't ignore it. I think that's, that's all to the greater good. Love your soil. Love your soil. I think that's right. Yes, I definitely advocate for that. Anthony, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been fun, Simon. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Uh, Anthony Finbo there from Eagle Genomics. And I think a lot of that stuff is very true. I really do think we have got to the stage where we are a little bit too clean, dare I say. And COVID has probably made people more nervous about that. But the soil is a vital part of what it is. And that is the biomass. That is... The, the microbes and you know our way of having everything antibacterial as you question the wisdom of that uh, keep subscribing to the podcast 
thank you very much for listening in. I do hope you're enjoying it. And remember, if you want to be featured on it, then just email at nethero at futurenetzero.com or get in touch with me on social media. Uh, promote it, share it, tell people that you like it, and uh, I'll catch you next time.